0: Generally speaking, 80 ounces of water is what I recommend. I don't really recommend it as a way to cleanse out your colon, because as we talked about before, I think cleansing out your colon is probably not something you need to do on a regular basis.
1: Welcome to Sex, Body, and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. This show, we welcome Dr. Manish Singler, my very own gastroenterologist. He is a Capital Digestive Care, and he specializes in colon cancer screening but also irritable bowel syndrome and inflammation of the bowel. He also spent 15 years in the U.S. Navy as a flight surgeon. We're going to talk about exactly what it means to have a colonoscopy, all about colon health, whether it's wise to be cleansing that colon, what foods to eat, the real to have Dr. Singla on the show. Dr. Manish Singla, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kate. Well, full disclosure, everyone. Manish is my doctor, and we just did my colonoscopy together. So he knows a lot more about me than a lot of you all do, (laughs) to say the (laughs) least. And now, of course, he is an expert on everything that's going on in our colon and our gut. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. Now, I understand the colon is also called the intestine. It's also called the digestive tract, and it's also called the bowel. Is that right? Yeah. So it's the large bowel, the large intestine, or the colon. Uh Uh-huh. And I also understand it's about five feet long. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think some people's colons are five feet long. Some people
0: are shorter. Some people are longer. Uh Everyone has a different colon. It lives the life you love.
1: Now- You're all going to be a bit surprised about how much I know about all of this. First of all, Dr. Singler has been extremely helpful. As I mentioned, I just went through a colonoscopy because I was having symptoms, which I had done a lot of research about. I know that so many of us suffer from IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome. I mean, there's so many things that can go on down there, hemorrhoids, anal fissures I actually read about today. What is an anal fissure?
0: yeah, an anal fissure is usually a, it's an overactive anus that causes bleeding and a anal pain when you're trying to have a bowel movement. They can be really, really debilitating. I um, and often happen in people who have constipation.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's also in the hemorrhoid family. And oh my gosh, that's right. yeah. such a great show today. So excited. Who knew? I get to talk about poop for a whole thirty minutes. So exciting. But let's, let's get serious because colon cancer, give us some stats, Manish. How many in the United States, what are we looking at here for sadly people who've succumbed to colon cancer?
0: So about 7% of Americans will develop colon cancer without sort of intervention or colonoscopy or any way to sort of break the pattern. We think some percentage of that 7% by the age of 45 or so will have developed asymptomatic colon cancer. And that's why we ask And we recommend that patients around age 45 get their first colonoscopy. The point of that is to go look for colon cancer that's not causing symptoms. So we can intervene early uh, before it spreads to the rest of the body. The additional benefit of colonoscopy at that time is to go look for these things called polyps. Mm -hmm. Polyps are little bumps in the colon that we think could turn into colon cancer if we don't remove them. Mm -hmm. And so your colonoscopy has those two purposes, to go look for cancer now and to go look for these polyps that we could remove to prevent you from developing colon cancer in the future.
1: Now, sadly, I have lost a number of friends to colon cancer and a very dear colleague of mine who, you know, he fought to the end through stage four colon cancer. And it's very slow, I understand. And that's why it's good to have regular colonoscopies because you can when you detect it early, I understand, you can treat it. But once once it's gotten to stage 4, there's very little you can do, is that right?
0: Every patient is different. There are patients who get stage 4 colon cancer who respond well to chemotherapy and can control their disease, mm-hmm. but usually by stage 4 a cure is not on the table. But you're right, that Because colon cancer grows slowly and because we think we can find it early, that's exactly why we recommend early colonoscopy.
1: Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the signs of colon cancer. I do also understand that sometimes there are no symptoms and you go and get a regular check and suddenly, you know, you're delivered the bad news. But what, what are some of the things that we should look out for with an indication that it might be colon cancer?
0: So I think generally speaking, when we think of colon cancer symptoms, things that worry me are frequent rectal bleeding, Mm -hmm. that's blood in your bowel movements, unintentional weight loss. So this is not weight loss intended by changing your diet and exercising Mm -hmm. and a new incidental finding of anemia. Anemia is when you, you know, your Mm -hmm. blood counts are low. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people who go to see their GPs regularly getting routine labs. When you have a new anemia, we always worry that could be from colon cancer. Mm -hmm. Other symptoms like abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation, fatigue, these are sometimes vaguer symptoms that can all be associated uh, with mm-hmm. cancer. And so when, when people have symptoms like that, they should always go see their doctor mm-hmm. so that other questions can be asked and other testing can be done to make sure it's not something sinister.
1: Mm. Well, this is definitely going to be a show of TMI. Regarding me, and I'm a big believer. If I talk about me, it will inspire others to get educated and listen to the podcast and and go and get help. And I was very lucky to find you. And when we were chatting before, I was oh, telling very you, kind of you, no, very lucky because I had my gallbladder out about six years ago, and since then, I just have not been right. And I, I don't know whether it's it's a reason for losing my gallbladder, but All hell let loose after that. And I have gone to so many specialists over the years and literally gave up thinking these guys don't know what they're talking about. How can they not fix me? And so a couple of months ago, I came to you, and I have to say, your entire practice is just lovely. And the nurses down to the guy giving me the anesthetic, which was fantastic, by the way, good afternoon nap right there. (laughs) But it was just it was a really great experience. I understood what I was going to go through. We had an initial consultation that you then put me on the regime which is the prep the dreaded prep as everybody talks about it where you have to basically empty your bowels and it's it's kind of a week's process if you read the guidelines i was a good student because i read the guidelines and <laughs> there's certain foods you can't eat for a whole week beforehand anything in high fiber right and then that's right and then you either get this nasty drink to drink, gallons and gallons of this horrible drink, which this is my third colonoscopy now. And the first two times I did the drink and I just couldn't keep it down. But you suggested taking these pills, which I think are quite new on the market, right? This is this is quite yeah, a new invention. relatively
0: new. Mm-hmm. Pill-based preps have been around for about a decade, maybe a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the frequency with which we use them has gone up, um, mm-hmm. mostly for the very reason that you said, you know. I hope no one is giving out gallons and gallons of PrEP anymore. They have gotten lower in volume, but the liquid PrEP is difficult to tolerate sometimes.
1: It was, I remember one of those huge, big gallon, like milk things. There was two of those to drink the last time I had a colonoscopy. And I I mean, I couldn't, I I just kept throwing it up. But everyone talks about, oh, the dreaded PrEP, the dreaded PrEP, that's the worst bit. And it, it is the worst bit because the rest you sail through and you're asleep. But you then have to sort of semi-starve yourself. But then you, you know, you you basically empty your colon and then the colon is free for you to go in and take a look to see what's going on. So talk us through that bit of when you're actually performing the, the colonoscopy. Is it considered surgery?
0: We usually talk about colonoscopy as a non-invasive procedure okay. as opposed to surgery. Mm-hmm. So this is a description of how things work in our practice. So I work for Capital Digestive Care mm-hmm. um, in the D.C. area. So what we do is, you know, you saw me for a consultation. We give you a prescription for the prep that you need to clean out your colon. As you very artfully described, the process to get prepped the day before. You then come to see us in our endoscopy unit. You always need a ride home because we're going to sedate you. and We don't want you to, you know, mm-hmm. sign a mortgage or drive a car after mm. we've given you sedation. And no Uber. No Uber, that's right. Mm-hmm. And so you then come into our endoscopy unit. You get an IV placed. I usually talk about that being the second worst part of the colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you meet our anesthetist. Our anesthetist talks about the very, very rare risks of the sedation we use. You then come into the room. You see my eyeballs after I'm all masked up and goggled up. A lot of people make some joke about how terrible the prep is. And that's, you know, it's a good time to, to laugh about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the anesthetist puts you to sleep. And then what I do is I take a flexible tube with a camera on the end of it, it's about the the width of a stethoscope. Mm -hmm. I put it in your bottom, I get it to the end of your colon, and then I fill your colon up with air so I can see the lining of it and look for small polyps or cancer on the withdrawal of the scope. Mm -hmm. Risks of that procedure include causing bleeding and a perforation. A perforation is when the scope goes through the wall of the colon, Mm -hmm. but those risks are well below 1%. They're pretty Mm -hmm. rare. Mm -hmm. You then wake up from the sedation. Everyone's very excited about their nap they roll out to the post-op area where I usually give them the results of their colonoscopy. Mm. Now, Kate, I think we've talked about this before. You did not remember that conversation, which is pretty frequent. Mm -mm. Uh, So because sometimes people (laughs) don't remember the conversation we have afterwards, I send you home with a report with all of our findings. And if there are biopsies or other stuff we've got to talk about, I usually try to call you back within about two weeks and Mm -hmm. let you know what your biopsies were and what we should do. next.
1: Yes. We flew through it. A couple of things I will say to make the prep easier because you also have to so you can have breakfast the day before but then you need to then you need to basically starve just liquids (laughs) clear liquids nothing red nothing with fiber in it well really nothing with food in it but then the next day when your procedure is you're really not allowed anything including water so I basically I don't know whether you remember but God, I never get headaches. And I had the worst headache of all time. So I was like, when is that propane coming? What is it propane that you use to put you out? Propofol. Oh, propofol. Propofol. Yeah, sorry. Not propane. That's stupid. Propane Um, is used for, you know, grills. Yeah. So basically, I think I was dehydrated, which is why I had such a terrible headache. But I woke up without the headache, a little sore down there. But for the rest of it, it was it was fantastic. And I felt really, really good about getting it and would encourage absolutely everybody at the age of 45 or above to go and get it, unless you have symptoms and then you go earlier, right? That's right.
0: That's mm-hmm. right. So, you know, we, we talk about the distinction between screening. Screening is someone who's not having any symptoms whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And so those are people that we want to get colonoscopies starting at age 45. Mm-hmm. But the distinction between that and someone who's having symptoms if you're having symptoms before the age of 45, we don't want to wait until 45 to do a colonoscopy in case those symptoms are suggestive of cancer.
1: Mm-hmm. So we had a very interesting conversation before, and, and I want to really get into this about colon care and also uh, colon spas. And uh, what do you call it? A colon cleanse, because you told me, even though Gwyneth Paltrow is telling me to do it all the time, that they're not good. So let's talk about that. And we can get back a little bit to the colonoscopy in a minute.
0: So I think, you know, after you've done a colon prep, after you've been cleaned out, you're going to feel a little bit lighter on your feet. You're going to feel a little bit less bloated. A lot of people feel well. Mm hmm. After they've done their colon prep. Oh, and I think it yeah. has led to, yeah, so it's, it's led to this trend of feeling like, oh, maybe I should do a colon prep frequently yeah. because it makes me feel so That's well.
1: exactly what I thought. Mm-hmm. I was, I was tripping through the tulips, literally. Yeah, and and right. I was, I was on a high basically for the next 48 hours. And I was like, well, I have never felt so light on my feet. This feels great. Right. And I started to look into the colon cleanse thinking, well, I have to do this every two weeks, but even my research turned up like a big no-no, but carry on.
0: Yeah, so I think intuitively it makes some sense. But the problem with doing colon cleanses is that remember that your colon is filled with lots and lots of bacteria. And that bacteria makes up your microbiome and it can be a determinant of your health and your wellness. And when you do a prep and when you do a colon cleanse, you are not only cleaning out all of your stool, but you're also cleaning out all of that bacteria. Mm -hmm. The good bacteria. That's right. All the good bacteria that's like sort of making up your health. Mm. Now, when we're recommending it before a colonoscopy you're doing every few years, I think that that's completely appropriate. It's very reasonable. But if you're cleaning out your good bacteria every couple of weeks, one of the issues with that is that you want your good bacteria. You need that good bacteria. To keep your body in equilibrium, mm-hmm. And when you clean out your good bacteria, you get bad bacteria, more virulent microbes, the ability to overgrow your good bacteria, and so that's why I almost never recommend colon cleanses, colon spas, like uh, you know frequent cleanouts. I'm not really sure what Gwyneth Paltrow. I mean, she obviously is wealthier than I am, so she may be onto something. But uh, we almost never recommend
1: that. Yeah. So I do understand that there's 100 trillion microbes that live in your colon. Is that right?
0: I mean, that's, that might even be an underestimate. So 100 wow. trillion are the ones that we've found. Uh-huh. But, you know, one of the things that the NIH is working that's just bacteria, right? We know nothing about what viruses are living in our colon, what yeah. funguses are living in our, you know, we've talked about the microbiome. But what about the fungome, the virome? There's so many things living inside the colon. It's very exciting. Mm. We just don't know anything about
1: it. Now, on a completely different subject, my daughter came home with threadworms the other day and literally dug That's them fair. out with her finger and showed them to me, which were tiny little... I was paranoid about getting these when I was a child, which I never did. And so I was slightly horrified on her behalf because it was just so uncomfortable. And of course, you clear it up yeah. with one little you know, shot of medicine.
0: That's but, right.
1: A lot of things can live in there, right? Including threadworms and tapeworm and all different worms, you know, having traveled around the world, eaten every kind of food known to man. Uh, I'm sure I've had some creepy crawlies living in there at some point. And how do you know you have them and how do you get rid of them? Great question. So, you know, parasite infections
0: of the colon, at least in the, in, in the developed world, are actually relatively rare. Most of the time, a parasitic infection is going to cause diarrhea, weight loss, loss, sometimes intermittent fevers. And so we have tests for it. You know, we sometimes will take a stool sample, look at your poop under a microscope to go look for parasites. Sometimes those parasites spit out proteins that we can identify. And so we have tests that we can do on your stool to look for those proteins. I do think that the worry about parasites seems to be more frequent than the actual occurrence mm-hmm. of parasites mm-hmm. in the colon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we we do what testing we think is appropriate to go look for it. But generally speaking, in the developed world, it's much rarer than it is in you know, sort of in developing countries mm-hmm. where your water source may not be as clean.
1: Yes. And I've been to a lot of those countries. Uh, so to get back to my experience going through the colonoscopy and this very latest exam showed that I had two pulps. And you took them both out, and one was fine, and the other one was dodgy. So I had an iffy (laughs) pulp. Now, does that mean I'm going to die? Am I high risk now? Like, what does that mean exactly?
0: So let's let's answer the middle question first. Of course you're going to die.
1: Yes, I know. But this is probably
0: not going to be the cause of it.
1: Okay. Oh, goody. Good, good,
0: good. We removed two pulps from your colon. And when we talk about what your long-term risk of colon cancer is, we try to identify the polyps that we removed and their characters. So bigger polyps are more likely to turn into colon cancer if we leave them in you. Mm-hmm. And polyps that we, when we look under the microscope that look more like cancer are more likely to turn into cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's called the histologic exam. So in you, you had two polyps. One of them was a little bit larger, over a centimeter in size. And because it was over a centimeter in size, we think of you as higher risk for developing colon cancer in your life than somebody who had no polyps whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And so in you, we shortened your interval of when your next colonoscopy should yeah. be. Instead of telling you, you know, Kate, your next colonoscopy should be in 10 years, we told you three years. You did. Because of the size of the polyps. Mm. But a lot of what I try to tell people is like, let me take care of your colon health. Don't worry about these polyps. We're going to come up with intervals as to when you should do your colonoscopy. Mm. But once we find them and you're in a program, I think you don't have to worry if they're going to be the source of your death. We're here to help you manage your polyps and remove them when they show up. And you should go on and live your life eating things that make you happy.
1: Okay, so let's just finalize on colon cancer itself. Let's say that you have a cancerous polyp and you discover it during your first colonoscopy. How quickly does that become dangerous? So how long is the gestation of colon cancer? and how early do you need to catch it to get the right treatment?
0: I think I can answer those questions. So if what we have found is a polyp that is not yet cancer, but is pre-cancer, so it's a, it's a high-risk polyp, we think those polyps take about 10 years to grow into cancer. I see. Mm-hmm. So the idea is removing them prevents you from developing colon cancer down the road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we find early cancer, stage one colon cancer in the colon, that's really our our goal is to find those cancers at stage one, where all you need is a surgery to remove it, and you end up with a cure. So that is, I think, what determines how frequently we want people to get colonoscopies and how early we want you to start, like we talked about, like at, at age
1: 45. Mm-hmm. Now, how many procedures do you have a week?
0: In our practice, for every day that we're in the endoscopy suite, we do between 10 and 14
1: colonoscopies. And how many of those people do you detect some form of cancer with?
0: So I think that, you know, in our practice, it's still pretty rare to find colon cancer because we've got patients who've got good access to health. Mm -hmm. They come in for their colonoscopies. Mm -hmm. They get seen by their physicians when they have symptoms. And so I think in our patient population, we do a good job of managing and preventing colon cancer. Mm -hmm. So I would say in the last two years, I have found probably under 20 colon cancers.
1: Okay, well, that's
0: positive. Um, However, in populations that have less access to care, where either there's less doctors, less ability to go see physicians, less ability to go see someone when you're having symptoms, those numbers are probably higher. That's how we get to this, you know, 7% nationally Mm. of people getting colon cancer.
1: Now, when we talk about colon care and looking after ourselves, obviously, you know, it's drummed into us to drink lots of water I do know that our colon absorbs about a quart of water a day. So how much water are we supposed to be drinking to cleanse out the colon? And about how often do you believe that we should be pooping? <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's, let's do the easier question first. So, you know, your
0: colon and your kidneys are very, very efficient organs at managing how much water your body should have. -hmm. So, you know, the National Kidney Foundation and the nephrologists have done a great job of putting out drink at least 80 ounces of water a day that keeps your circulation and your kidneys in good function. Mm -hmm. Your colon is really there to absorb the amount of water you need. Mm -hmm. So, if you drink too much water, your stools might be a little bit looser. You might be urinating a little bit more often. But your colon and your kidneys do a pretty good job of managing how much water of what you take in you need and you should use. So, I think. Generally speaking, 80 ounces of water is what I recommend. I don't really recommend it as a way to cleanse out your colon, because as we talked about before, I think cleansing out your colon is probably not something you need to do on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. As for how often you should poop, the right answer is how often it keeps you comfortable. Mm-hmm. The story I always tell people is I had a I have a good friend of mine who poops once a week. He's a gastroenterologist. He poops once a week. We bought him a little T-shirt with a stick figure with the hands
1: up in the air that says, I poop today. I want that. You can wear it on the days that he You better be getting me that T-shirt. You can even brand it with the body agency. No, no. I mean, I I love it. I love it. We We need it. We need it at the body agency. We need that shirt. We do need it. We do. But the thing
0: is that that's been his entire life and he's perfectly comfortable. He doesn't have pain. He doesn't have cramping. He doesn't have bloating. So he poops once a week and he feels great about it. So he doesn't do anything to change it.
1: That must be a very large poop. Have I imagine that we, we certainly <laughs> we certainly have.
0: He does tell us it is a very large boot.
1: I mean that must be like giving birth to a baby.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean all very possible in size but but again, you know, that's what works for him.
1: Yeah. And I have okay. some
0: people who aren't comfortable if they don't have a bowel movement every day. I have some people who aren't comfortable if they don't have bowel movements 2 to 3 times a day. Yeah. Everything that we titrate, everything we talk about in my clinic is The number of bowel movements you should have are the number of bowel movements that keep you comfortable. You don't need to have a specific number. You don't need to have a bowel movement every day. You don't need to have a certain number a week. Whatever keeps you comfortable is the right number of bowel
1: movements to have. Now, in all of my research over the years, I have (laughs) found, because I'm quite the expert now, that I'm supposed to eat certain foods and drink certain things for a healthy colon, as in to keep your colon moving. And those things, everybody, are lemons, ginger, mint, <laughs> watermelon, cucumber, cranberry, grapefruit, and apple cider vinegar, which is disgusting, but it's all about the app There are even apple cider vinegar gummies now, okay? Like, people are making money out of this stuff. And then on the food side of things broccoli, leafy greens, milk, who knew, raspberries, oatmeal, and then, of course, plenty of water. Now, am I barking up the right tree here?
0: I would say no. I think the right answer here is that the most important thing, so to double back on something we talked about before, right, your colon is filled with bacteria, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and much of that bacteria is good bacteria. It keeps you in equilibrium. And so the most important thing is to have a diverse diet. Eat lots of different things, Eat things that sort of add and take away from the bacteria that you have. Mm-hmm. But the idea that certain foods and certain liquids are best for your colon health, I think is overstated. I think the most important thing is to eat the things that make you happy. Mental health is yep. gut health. Gut yep. health is yep. mental health. Mm-hmm. Eat the things that make you happy. Food is part of our culture. Yeah. And so as long as you're eating lots of different things, you're going to keep your gut microbiome diverse. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that you need to emphasize taking apple cider vinegar or enough, you know, citrus oil to keep your colon healthy. Mm. That said, there are people who, when they take apple cider gummies or drink apple cider vinegar, they feel better. Yeah. I don't think that there's any harm in it. Mm-hmm. And so if it's, if it's making your symptoms that, you, that you're concerned about feel better, I think it's totally reasonable. But I don't know that I've ever recommended someone start drinking apple cider because mm.
1: it's disgusting. Now we have a wonderful lady who helps advise us at the body agency, Catherine Templeton on Ayurveda, the ancient Indian natural medicine, herbal medicine approach yeah. to health. And there's a lot to be said for turmeric and a lot, a lot of the different herbs and spices that they recommend. And she was telling me that, a good old poop every morning, a healthy poop is the way to go. In, in fact, she even went as far to say, force yourself to have that poop, which doesn't always happen. However, what works for me, and you and I have talked about this, is coffee. And I'm wondering, is that a natural stimulant? Is caffeine helping you poop?
0: Uh, it sure is. So, you know, like when you wake up in the morning, that's actually the greatest stimulant to have a bowel You know, you've been asleep some of your systems slow down, you're building muscle, your REM sleep, you wake up and your body wants to get to work. And part of what wants to get to work is your colon. Your colon wants to squeeze, wants to have a bowel. And since most people also drink their coffee in the morning, coffee is a stimulant. It's also going to stimulate your colon to move. So that combination of waking up and drinking coffee, those two things together can stimulate you to have a bowel. I certainly swear by my morning coffee to help me. As for whether or not you need to have a bowel movement every day and you should force yourself to have a bowel movement a day. I don't know that I agree with. That. Mm-hmm. I think if you have a bowel movement every morning and it keeps you comfortable, that's, that's wonderful. But the idea of forcing yourself to try to have a bowel movement, I think creates a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It gets people straining on the toilet, it can cause hemorrhoids, it can cause fissures. These are, the, that's a little bit more difficult for me to get back get mm-hmm. behind. Mm-hmm.
1: Now. Let's talk about food transit timing. So we sit down and have a meal. Okay. How long does that food take to transit through your body into your colon and out? I understand it's anything from 12 to 48 hours. Is that right? Yeah, I think that that's a reasonable
0: estimate. So really, the answer is that everybody's different. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we think that, you know, when you put food in your mouth, it takes about 30 seconds to get to your stomach. About One to four hours to empty out of your stomach into your small bowel, and then maybe another, you know, three to four hours to empty out of your small bowel into your colon. Mm -hmm. But then, once it makes it into your colon, it can take a long time. It can take a short time. A lot of that depends on who you inherently are. Are you someone who poops every day? Are you someone who poops three times a day? Are you someone who poops every three days? There really isn't a normal per se. So I can't tell you, you know, Kate, you had. You know corn muffin this morning can be out of your system by noon tomorrow. Mm. It really depends on who you are and what the pace of your guts is.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, should you always look at your stool and check it out? Because us <laughs> Europeans, no, I'm dead serious here. Us Europeans were obsessed with it. So much so that when we build toilets, we build toilets with a little ledge so that we can actually check it out. And I think there's a lot to be said for that because you can see what your body is digesting. You can see if last night's dinner is in your stool. You can see if it looks healthy or not. Like that, I think that's the idea of having the little ledge. But us in America, God forbid we even talk about poop, right? It's, It's not really something that usually people are chatting about at the dinner table. Very different in my household, let me tell you. My friends and my family know that I'm going to talk about poop. But, you know, why is your body not digesting certain things would be a question. And should we be checking out our poop to see how healthy it is? And what what's the perfect color and the perfect shape of your poop? Or does that really not matter?
0: Yeah, so I don't think that there is a perfect shape. I don't think there is a perfect color. Poop comes in lots of different colors. It comes in lots of different shapes. I think there are worrisome colors. Mm-hmm. When I see or hear about poop that looks like coffee grounds, it's black and tarry and sticky. I worry that there's blood in there. Oh. When I hear about poop that is, you know, bright red with blood, that obviously makes me worry that there's blood in there. And there are times when sometimes your poop can be clay colored, like very, very light colored. Mm-hmm. And that can signal something going on with your gallbladder or your liver. So those are the times I get concerned, but really the spectrum of other poop colors and other poop shapes? I think it's fun to know about, but other poop colors don't generally make me worried.
1: Yeah I even have a poop Bible in my bathroom so that when my guests okay. come they can they can look up you know to make sure that, that they identify their poop in the right way with, with some images. When you have your gallbladder out, how does yeah. that affect your digestive system? Because doesn't your gallbladder produce bile?
0: Yeah, so, you know, think of your gallbladder as a, as a small pump that's mm-hmm. next to your liver. So your liver generates as part of, your, part of some of its waste products bile and it, your gallbladder collects that bile because it also combines with enzymes that you need to break down fats that you eat. Mm-hmm. So your gallbladder is like a little pump, right? And so every time you have a meal, your gallbladder pumps out a little bit of bile to break down the foods that you're eating. When you get your gallbladder removed, that pump no longer exists. And so, what that means is that the bile that's being generated by the liver isn't only spitting into your bowels when you eat, a little bit is coming out intermittently. Mm-hmm. That little bit of bile can sometimes irritate your colon. It's called bile acid diarrhea. And so, in post cholecystectomy or post gallbladder surgery syndromes, sometimes people get a lot of diarrhea, particularly burning diarrhea. The bile that's in the stool can cause burning. The therapy for that usually revolves around giving you bile acids, things that can bind up bile acids, things like cholestyramine and cholesterol are medications you can take to reduce that diarrhea, reduce that burning. Um, But those medications can also sometimes not be as palatable. Mm -hmm. Did that answer the question? Yeah, it
1: does actually very, very well. And I do think the next show that we do together, we need to really dive into (laughs) IBS, Irritable Bowel Syndrome, which so many people suffer from, especially women at midlife, according to a lot of friends of mine who have just not been able to get it properly diagnosed. So I think that that is a show all on its own. I thank you profusely for being on the show today. You do great work. Uh colon cancer prevention awareness is so so important to get the right treatment, the right preventative care and and you and Capital Digestive Care are doing such a great job. So is there are there any lasting words that you would like to share with our listeners?
0: I think more important than anything else is one, get your first colonoscopy at 45 or at least talk to somebody about why you might not want to because there are other options Mm -hmm. if you balk at that. And two, remember, we as gastroenterologists are here to help. If you have IBS, if you're concerned, come see us and let us help you because I think we have a lot of ways that we can provide some guidance.
1: Well, I'm firsthand. I have seen that and I'm very grateful to you. And we still have a little work to do. So I will be back. And I definitely will be back for my next colonoscopy in three years. And uh, again, thank you for being such a great guest and doctor. All right, see you later, Kate. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body, and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed Dignity Kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a Dignity Kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code podcast 10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.